Every once in a while, parents get a little over-involved in their children's sporting events. Have you ever seen some of the bad behavior and the outbursts on the baseball diamond or on the volleyball court or at the swim meet? And every once in a while, you see something that you just know that you're never going to forget. It was true for Kelly's family when Brian, her younger brother, was in the fifth grade and he was playing basketball. And usually basketball in the fifth grade is not terribly exciting just because the ball never goes in the hoop. It's about the same score of a baseball game. And, um, and there was this one particularly close contest and all the extended family were there and they were cheering Brian on and, and they were ahead and all of a sudden the team put it in the basket and, and it was tied and all of a sudden you could cut the tension with a knife because there was only a few seconds left when the coach called a timeout for Brian's team so they could huddle up and pull together a play. And so, you know, kind of a hush fell over the crowd and all the boys kind of leaned in to hear what the coach was saying. And Kelly's mom doesn't know a lot about sports, but she saw Brian kind of lean over in the huddle and she just, she was so excited. She just couldn't contain herself. And she just had this outburst where she said, Brian, stand up straight, honey. And of course, Brian's in the huddle, and he's like, and every head in the entire basketball arena turned and looked at her, because like a good mom, she's always concerned about our posture. (laughs) Mothers everywhere, fathers everywhere, always telling you to stand up straight, to get your hands out in front of your face, to get your elbows from off of the table, to to be able to lift your head high. They even have apps these days with little things that you can stick on your body that that tell you whether or not your posture is adequate or good. It'll beep at you if your posture, if you begin to slouch. Um, I don't don't want one of these for my kids. I'm waiting until they have the ones that shock you when your posture is bad. That's when I'll buy them for our family. They say that 90% of all communication is nonverbal in nature. It's not what you say, it's what you communicate with your face, with your body, with the, the way that you're acting in that moment. And that's not just true for us as people, it's just woven into the very fabric of all of creation. It doesn't take a lot of creativity to look at the peacock and to say that the peacock is saying, hey, check me out. <laughs> doesn't have to make a sound, just has to show its feathers. Or it doesn't take a lot of imagination to know that this cobra is saying, you're dead. (laughs) Doesn't need to warn you except for you to see that head looking at you in that way and you're like, I'm a goner. We know that this woman has won the race. And we know that this team has lost the match. Doesn't matter what country you're from, it doesn't matter what socioeconomic demographic you have, it doesn't matter what kind of situation you're from, every culture, every language, every different part of the world, the the imagery of shame, the imagery of victory, it's universal, it's hardwired into us. Disney and Pixar capitalized on being able to express emotions in this way when it came out with the movie Inside Out. And notice that not only did they pick colors that tended to be able to depict the different emotions that are there, and it's not just the facial expressions, 
It's also the postures of their body. Look at the expression of joy and disgust and anger and sadness and fear. Their bodies demonstrate what they are feeling without a word even coming out of their mouth. And so a Harvard Business School researcher, Amy Cuddy, puts it this way, we're holding entire conversations, exchanging important information without ever saying a word. 90% of communication is nonverbal in nature. And so let me ask you, does that not just apply to the way that we interact? Does that apply in your relationship with God, in your posture with prayer. We're talking about grace habits. We're in the midst of a series where we're talking about becoming more grateful, more available, more curious, more encouraging. We're talking about the little things that you do that can have a disproportionate impact on your life, little shifts in behavior that you can engage in that help you to grow as a follower of Jesus Christ. And for four weeks, we talked about how can we become more grateful and four little habits, kind of a mini-series. And then we're in the midst of that second mini-series right now talking about becoming more more available. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about turning it off. We discussed technology and how it is infringing on our ability to be available to God and the people around us. Last week, we talked about lighting a candle, which was the, the marking of time so that we might rediscover the ancient practice of Shabbat, of Sabbath, of rest, of replenishment. And today, we're going to talk about prayer. And we're going to talk about what it might be like to take a knee of surrender. If I could put a camera on the invisible part of your life, of your soul, if I could zoom in with a lens on your soul when you're in prayer, what would the posture of your prayer be like? When you go before God, how are you asking how are you engaging with Almighty God? If, if maybe like borrowing imagery from the movies, if we were to zoom in on your soul when you pray, are you like Jerry Maguire? <laughs> are you saying, show me the money, God? Are you showing up and you're desperate and you're demanding? Or maybe you're like this character from Home Alone. Maybe you only come to God when you're afraid or you're in pain. And that's your approach to God and to prayer. Or maybe for you, you're more like Meryl Streep in The Devil Wears Prada. You think everyone and everything is beneath you. You treat everything with disdain. It's almost like you approach God and say, I'm really busy, God, but I'll give you a few moments. Or is your life of prayer like this little girl? on the ground beside her bed, head bowed, trusting, waiting, asking in God's presence. The primary posture of the Bible in prayer is to kneel. And one of the golden threads, because the Bible was written over thousands of years and different expressions of the microenvironments, a variety of cultures of God meeting his people. But 
even over those thousands of years, there's this one consistent theme that just seems to run through it all. All the major characters of the Bible, they kneeled. Abraham is confronted by two angels. And in Genesis chapter 19, when he saw them, he got up to meet them and he bowed down with his face to the ground. Moses, when he is receiving the Ten Commandments towards the end of the book of Exodus, the stone tablets which will form the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, Moses in that moment bows to the ground at once and worships. When Solomon installs the Ark of the Covenant into the temple and he gathers to worship there, he finishes all the prayers and the supplications to the Lord. He rose before the altar of the Lord where he had been kneeling with his hands spread out towards the heaven, this mighty king who is humbling himself before an even greater God. Daniel, by the time his people are in exile, finds himself in a place where he's in trouble because he will not bow and kneel before the empires of this world. And in the privacy of his own room with his window facing towards Jerusalem, he keeps kneeling on his knees several times a day to remind him. And this is right before he faces the lion den. Peter is confronted by a family in grief from the untimely death of a woman and he goes in to pray for her and he asks everyone to leave and he got down on his knees before the corpse and he prays. Paul has spent three years in Ephesus. They love him dearly. He adores them deeply. And when they say goodbye, it's time to leave, they all walk from the city down to the beach where the boat is waiting to take Paul away. And there on the beach, they all as a community knelt down and they prayed. And when Jesus was here on his last night of earth, and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays that famous prayer, and he says, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus withdrew withdrew and And he knelt down and he prayed. And so let me ask, if it wasn't beneath our Lord and our Savior to get down on his knees, why are we so reticent to do so? There was a period of time when I was in graduate school, when I was in seminary, when I felt like my prayer life was drying up like a creek bed in a West Texas sun. It's ironic because I was spending the vast majority of my day learning about God. I was going to chapel every single day. I was spending my spare time working in a church in order to try to help people to connect with God. And in spite of all of that, kind of in the middle of time of seminary, it just started to dry up. Kelly and I were dating at the time, and um, she insisted, because I was working at another church and we weren't able to be together, particularly on Sundays, she insisted that we would worship together somewhere. And so she found a little Episcopal church that was around the corner from our campus, and we went into this sanctuary at Trinity Episcopal. And she found this early morning service that I could still get to my responsibility on time that 
where we could worship together. It's a really short service. It's kind of like the 820 service that we have in the chapel. Pastor Vicky's kids said that it's all the church that you ever need. It's all like condensed into like Cliff Notes version. And in the Catholic tradition, you refer to it as the fast mass. It was the short little service and there wasn't anything different about it to the scriptures, to the songs, all of that was familiar. One thing was different, that a good chunk of that service was spent not sitting and not just standing, but we prayed together on our knees. And it wakened within me something that had laid dormant for a long time. that in seminary, it was really easy to kind of think of yourself as kind of a disembodied brain for Jesus. But that there was more to my soul than that. Psalm 95 says this, come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice. There's something about hearing God. There's something about coming to God that is at its best when we are willing to go on our knees. The way that C.S. Lewis describes it is he says that you and I are kind of like amphibious creatures. It's almost like we were built for two different worlds that we're kind of land creatures and we're sea creatures in the sense of that you and I um, we're, we're not just like the animals because we have a soul and that we're not, um, we're, we're not just like the angels because we, we have a body, that we have both of those qualities and, and that a great deal of harm is done in our lives when we forget one way or the other, that if we really do live our life in such a way that we forget that there is a spirit, that there is a soul, we do great harm to our lives. We also do a great harm to our lives if we think that we are purely spirit and we forget that we have a body. A lot of the heresies of Christian tradition are actually tied to the forgetfulness of one of those two different extremes. And so C.S. Lewis, who was a huge proponent of kneeling to pray, said this, the body ought to pray as well as the soul. The body and soul are both better for it. And so the invitation that's before you today is to consider your prayer life. Honestly, I don't meet many people who, who would say that their prayer life is exactly where they want it to be. And for you to work on your prayer life, but I want you to work on your prayer life in kind of an unusual place. I don't want you to start with your soul. I don't want you to start with your mind. Jesus said you were to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. In order for you to involve your strength, you're going to have to involve your body. And so why don't you let your body take the lead in rekindling your life of prayer? Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. This is the school that I went to. It's called Trinity University. It's in the heart of San Antonio, Texas. And I was there for four years as a student. And then I was privileged um, after a little while of time of to be invited to become a trustee. So the, one of the longest investments of my life is, is I've spent, you know, roughly about 15 years plus investing in the Trinity University campus and experience. There was 
when I joined the board of trustees, there was a pastor who was kind of the outgoing pastor of the board, and I was kind of coming in. And one of the things that he told me is he's talked about what an incredible privilege it had been over the last decades to be able to kind of knowingly say as a trustee that he was deeply praying for the school and that he was kind of passing that mantle on to me. And I'm like, that's a really good idea. I should pray for Trinity. And you need to know that every once in a while I would. Formally at events, occasionally in my office, would pass by something in my office and go, oh, I should pray for Trinity. And, but what you need to know about me and my prayer life is, is that it's sometimes pretty quick that, that it's like, dear Jesus, I pray for Trinity. Oh, look, there's a bird out of my window. And so, I prayed for Trinity, but I don't think it's really as deep and available as what God would want. So, I was walking on the campus one day, and I saw, I was a couple years removed, I saw that pastor on the campus. He was walking the campus, and there was something in my heart that just sank and said, I'm not living up to what I think God wants for me. And so the next day, I got up early, and I parked down on Lower South Campus, and I made my way through the athletic fields early in the morning, and I started praying as I was walking for the students and their life of recreation, and not everything that is important that is learned is learned in a classroom. Prayed for the safety of students and for there being sports, still remaining in sport, and that they would enjoy one another and that they would celebrate together. Prayed for intramural teams and the NCAA teams, and then I made my way after praying for the coaches up towards the dining hall and walked amongst the tables of the dining hall, praying for students and for the conversations that they would have and that they would honor God by the way that they treated one another and that they would discover what it is to live in community, that they would be inclusive and that they would reach out to one another. The table would be seen for far more than just for the consumption of food, but for what it meant to build relationships. And I walked through the outside of the dormitories, and because it was early in the morning, all the students were asleep, so I prayed for their sleeping lives, prayed for them that they would not burn the candle at both ends and experience only stress and anxiety, but that they would also experience peace. And I made my way up and towards the academic buildings and the, and the administration buildings and the admission center and students that even weren't at Trinity yet and found my way all the way back over and by the chapel and I prayed for their souls and I prayed for their spiritual lives and 45 minutes went by. 45 minutes of uninterrupted prayer all for Trinity which was definitely a personal record for me. And it was because my body was taking a lead with my soul that made me available to God. There is a woman in this church who is passionate about prayer. And upon hearing that there was a girl from this congregation who was in the hospital, she would drive to the parking lot of that hospital. And she would entreat before God for the healing of that girl. 
And she did that multiple days in a row to keep praying. Now, theologically, do we believe that God hears prayers more because you're in closer proximity to the recipient? No. But do we believe that we might be changed, that we might be more available, we might be more tuned in with the Spirit when we are willing to fully engage in a life of prayer and invest in it in that kind of way? Yeah. I think it does matter. A couple of weeks ago, we had a leadership event, and uh, Horst Schulze came to the church and Here's a picture of Horst, and you might know of him in the Atlanta area because he's one of the co-founders of the Ritz-Carlton and heavily invested in the gift of hospitality. And we here at Peachtree, we're not trying to be the coolest church in town, but we are trying to be the warmest. We would love for the friendship and the love and the care for one another to be the kind of thing that that the service of what it means to be in community here would be as good as what it is in the finest of hotels around the world. And so he was helping us to think about what do we need to do in order to do that. But the part that stuck with me the most was towards the end of the event when Horst told his story, a part of his own spiritual journey when he shared this with us. I went in for my annual physical exam and was shocked to hear that I had a colon of the cancer, a rare malignancy that accounts for only 1% of all cancer diagnosis. We'll operate to remove it, the surgeon said, but it will come back within a year. It's like a snowstorm. It just shows up everywhere on the scan. That evening, I looked at my dear wife, Sherry, and said, this can't be happening. Soon we're praying together, God, please, our children, they're only nine and five and 18 months. They won't even know me as they grow up. I won't be able to help them. I won't be able to influence them. I won't know what they look like. I made appointments to see more oncology specialists, every one of them, after examining my case, confirming the original diagnosis. And soon I'm screaming at God, trying to bargain with him. I'll do anything you ask. Just let me live for my family. I found it hard even to pray the Lord's Prayer, particularly that line, thy will be done. Lord, please include my healing in your will, I begged. My high-flying career in the hotel world faded into importance all the ambition, the strategic plans, the ego, the money, the recognitions, all of them stripped away. They weren't relevant anymore. And when this kind of upheaval erupts in your life, it's easier to let God come in and to fill the vacuum. A scripture from my boyhood confirmation class back in Germany returned to my mind. He will cover you with feathers and under his wings you will find refuge his faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. And I recited that verse over and over and over again. The surgery proceeded. It was successful for the time being. And the next Monday, the technicians did a full body scan to see if some of that snow had already started growing elsewhere in my body. They told me I had to come back on Thursday to hear the results. Why so long, I wondered. I was tempted to launch into one of my spiels about customers needing timeliness, but I restrained myself. On Wednesday night, the night before hearing the results, Sherry and I were lying on the living room floor, kneeling, praying. 
I had never really prayed like this before. I had never felt so close to her. We prayed that somehow I would come back from all of this. We prayed that our daughters. And in the midst of all of our praying, a friend of mine by the name of John Watson knocked at the door. We invited him in and he said, I don't know how to say this, so I'm just going to say it. I want to tell you guys what happened to me before your operation. I woke up in the middle of the night and I, somehow I just knew that someone else was in the room. And what happened next was that this somebody said to me, don't worry about your friend Horst. I have other plans for him. That was in 1992. And Horst is still alive and with us today. Do I think that Horst was healed because he was willing to kneel on the floor as opposed to praying while sitting? No. Do I believe that he became more in tune with the Spirit and that he was more available to God because all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, all of his strength were invested in prayer. Oh, yeah. And so today I want to end the sermon in an unusual place because Presbyterians are not known for our expressiveness. I invite you to join me in kneeling where you are, if you want. I mean, if you've had double knee replacement surgery, don't do this. But in your pew, if you'd be willing to lean forward, to get on your knees. That collectively, we would begin the journey and the posture of surrender. That right now, we would realize that we are joining a line of people like Abraham and Moses and Solomon and Daniel and Paul and Peter and Jesus. And that we would let our bodies take the lead in recatalyzing our life of prayer. And so let us pray. Our good and our gracious Father, how rare it is that we humble ourselves and that we take more than a few moments to offer ourselves before you. We take the posture of receiving a blessing, knowing that we cannot do this on our own. We pray for people who need healing whose bodies, whose minds, whose lives are broken, whose relationships are fractured. In particular, I pray for the person who doesn't know you, is skeptical about you, feels far from you. And maybe even for that person, they're right now their body is taking the lead with what they want and long for with their soul.
And so God, as we know in your word that apart from you, we can do nothing, we offer our whole lives to you right now for you to forgive us. And out of gratitude, God, we thank you for the just incalculable number of blessings that you have showered upon us. And so in this act of worship, we come before you now and we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ and all of God's people said.